John chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, and with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover, Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust him to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the morning of July 16th, 1969, the country was riveted to our television sets. And this is what we heard. Some of you may remember this. 30 seconds and counting. Astronauts report it feels good. T-25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engines running. Liftoff. We have liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. I don't know if you remember that particular liftoff, but that was a momentous countdown. It was the first manned visit 
to the moon, Apollo 11. And so it was an historic day. And that countdown and other countdowns like that are embedded in our minds. When I think of countdown, I think of this sort of countdown for the Apollo uh, series of rocket launches. We have countdowns in other places in life, don't we? We have countdowns every year. Uh, we uh, look at Times Square or we go somewhere else and we, we count down together until the, the first second of the new year. I was at an Irish pub once and I was quite amused because at this Irish pub, I don't remember when it was, maybe October, but there was a clock there counting down to the second until when? St. Patrick's Day, exactly. So, something about humans, we love countdowns. And what we have here in this chapter, we have the beginning. We have the beginning of the countdown. We could look at chapter 1 as the, the initial announcement of who Jesus is. And we, we heard a number of different titles for Jesus in chapter 1. But now there are some events which begin the countdown. And we have two events here. The first one in verses 1 to 12 is the first sign that Jesus performed. And then we have in the, the rest of the chapter the first challenge that he laid down to the religious authorities. Now we have here, uh, we've, we've been counting days, and it looks like this is the sixth day. Uh, do you recall that we saw in chapter 1, we had the first day, and then verse 29, the next day, and then verse 35, the next day, and then verse 43, the next day. And for some reason, uh, the author is giving us the first week of Jesus' ministry, because we have here in chapter 2, it says, on the third day. And so we have the first three days, and then we have, it looks like, three days more, and we're at day 6. So we're getting to the end of the first work week of Jesus' public ministry. And it says that they were in Cana of Galilee. We met Philip last week. Uh, it turns out that Philip was from Cana, which was a town in the, the northern province of Galilee, Judea in the south, Galilee in the north. And they had gone up to Judea. He had gone there to look for Philip, apparently. And now they go to this wedding. We don't know what the connection was, but Jesus was there. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus' disciples were there. Now, it's interesting that it calls Jesus' mother the mother of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, we never know her name. We know her name was Mary from other Gospels, but the, the, uh, the author of this Gospel never gives us her name. And they were at this wedding feast, and we need to understand some of the customs of the time. The groom's family was responsible for the wedding celebration. And uh, the wedding celebration could last up to a week. And the groom's, uh, the groom's family was responsible to provide sufficient supplies for the entire week. And uh, if they failed to do that, uh, there were two problems into which they could fall. One was social embarrassment. But also, this was seen as something of a legal contract, and there could actually be lawsuits if the groom did not provide sufficiently for the wedding celebration. And so this was not just a social faux pas, a little moment of embarrassment. This was, particularly in a small town like this, where, where maybe all of the, the town was there, this could have grave implications for this family. And somehow, the mother of Jesus knew that there was a problem that the wine had run out. We don't know where 
It had run out in what day we were, but there was not sufficient wine to finish out the celebration. And so she went to her son. Now, we don't know why she did this exactly. And there is speculation because we don't find Joseph in the picture. That is her husband. We don't find him in the picture uh, except uh, up till Jesus was 12 years old. And there's speculation that he had died and left uh, the mother of Jesus as a widow. And so on whom would she tend to depend? She would tend to depend on her firstborn son. And it may be that just whenever she had a problem, she would go to her firstborn son for him to try to resolve the problem. So she goes to him and she doesn't exactly ask him to do anything. She just makes a statement. And the statement is, they have no wine. But it was an implied request that her son do something about this. So this is mother going to son with a problem for him to fix. And Jesus' response in verse 4 it feels almost shocking because it seems so abrupt. It seems so rude. He says to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, this address of Jesus to his mother, calling her woman, that was not in the day an impossible way to address a woman. It was not as rude as it may sound in English. But it was not how one addressed his or her mother. It was the way you might address a woman that you don't know. Something like madam today. We might say madam or ma'am to a woman that we don't know. It's a term of politeness, but it's a term also of, of distance, saying, I'm, I'm not in a close relationship with you. This is not how one would address one's mother. And then he says, what does this have to do with me? Actually, this translation tones down a bit uh, this, this question. The question was literally, what is there between me and you, woman? And that's the same question that the demons asked Jesus back in Mark chapter 1, verse 24. When Jesus confronted them, the demons asked the exact same question. And they said, what is there between us and you, Jesus? And so obviously this is a statement that is trying to put distance. And so Jesus is very clearly marking a difference in his relationship thenceforth from that time on. It would not be the same. He would not be simply this woman's firstborn son. And she could not treat him in that same way, nor could he treat her in that same way as well. And he gave an explanation of why not. And this is enigmatic. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, put that in a, in a sticky note, write on a sticky note and put in your brain, hour, come, my hour, the hour. Because as we go through the Gospel of John, we will find this expression multiple times. And eventually there will be a momentous announcement that the hour has come. And I'm just going to give you, I'm going to spoil it a little bit for you so that we can understand what this means here. When he says his hour, and when he finally says that his hour has come, he's referring to his death on the cross. Now, how is that an explanation to his mother? What is there between me and you? 
What does this situation of the wine have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Well, it is, it is enigmatic. We need to try to read between the lines somewhat here. But it looks like what he's saying is this. If you involve me in this, if, if you're calling on me because his mother knows who he is, uh, before this we don't know of him doing any signs. This is called the first sign. But, but the idea is that if you involve me in this, and if I, if I do a sign, then the clock will start ticking. The clock, the countdown will begin. And the countdown will begin and my hour will come. And so unwittingly, his mother, with this innocent request, was, was, was urging him to start the countdown to the cross. And she obviously did not understand the implications of her request, but she depended on him. And we see that she, at the end, simply said, do whatever he tells you to the servants. So she also takes something of a transition, makes something of a transition from mother requesting son to believer trusting him to do what's best. And he actually is willing to involve himself in this situation after all. And what he does, and this is one of the better known signs that he has done, if you know anything about the the, the miracles of Jesus, this is probably one of the ones of which you've heard, turning water into wine. But what he does is he takes six stone water jars. Now the significant thing about these water jars, look at verse 6. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for what purpose? For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So do the math. Uh, we have between what? 120 and 180 gallons of water. And the Jews had various rites of purification by which they would wash themselves in order to purify themselves. And they were there waiting for that purpose. And so Jesus took advantage of that. He says, fill them up. They filled them up to the brim. And then he said, draw out some of the liquid, take it to the, the uh, head of the feast, and then the head of the feast tasted it, and it had become wine. Now, this is significant that he used these jars, because what we find Jesus doing here is we find him replacing. There were these jars there of water used for purification, And by turning their content into wine, he rendered them useless for purification. That could no longer be used for purification. It could be used for celebration, because now it was wine. But it could not be used for purification anymore. And not only could it be used for celebration... It was better than the wine that was served at first. And that was what was so impressive to the master of the feast. He tasted and he said, what are you doing? You've done this backwards. Everybody puts out the the, the good stuff first. And then once people have drunk uh, freely, they're not going to pay so much attention to how good or bad the wine is. But you have saved the best for last. So what's he doing here? He's saying there were rites of purification. There were attempts to, to... to make ourselves pure before God, but, 
but I'm setting those aside in favor of something that really will purify. And we found last week that that which really will purify is not water poured out from a stone jar, but blood poured out from the Lamb of God who would be slain to take away the sins of the world. So in this first sign, He's putting away the temporary. He's putting away the obsolete. He's putting away that which never really could accomplish its purpose. And He's pointing forward to that which will accomplish the purpose of purification before God. Now this was the first sign. And if you look at the conclusion to this, it says in verse 11, this, the first of His signs, by the way, this is, in this gospel, this is the preferred description of what we would call miracles. We find other descriptions in other gospels, uh, like works of power. Uh, but here, they're often, almost always called signs. Signs. And what do signs do? They point, exactly. And it says after, it says that this first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is what signs were supposed to do. They were supposed to point beyond themselves. And in this case, they're pointing to Jesus' glory. And the result is that we should believe in him if we see the signs and we see that to which these signs are pointing. And that's what happened here. It worked like a charm, right? They, they saw the signs, they saw his glory, and they believed in him. That's the first incident. The second, with a little bit of an interlude, in verse 13, they went to Capernaum. And Capernaum, we find out in the other Gospels, became the base of operations for Jesus in the the northern province of Galilee. And it looks like maybe that's where his family was living by that time. They had moved from Nazareth and were in Capernaum, it looks like. It, It says that his mother was there, his brothers were there, his disciples were there. They stayed there for a few days, and after this interlude... They travel south again. Now, this Gospel, this Gospel of John that we're considering, has a great deal of information that the other ones don't. The other Gospels focus on the northern ministry in Galilee. But here, in the Gospel of John, we find three, or maybe four visits to Jerusalem during the Passover. And so keep an eye out for these visits to Jerusalem during the Passover. This is the first one. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover was one of three annual feasts that the Jews uh, celebrated. There were other feasts, but this was one of the three annual feasts during which the Jews were to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate in Jerusalem. So you can imagine how crowded Jerusalem got during these times. You can look at Exodus chapter 23 verses 14 to 17, to find the three feasts uh, that they were to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now, let's think about this. The people had been dispersed around the what was now the Roman Empire, so there were Jews all over the Roman Empire, and they were to go up to Jerusalem. So they had some of them to travel long distances. And when they got there, they were to, uh, in the Passover, for example, sacrifice a lamb. Now, uh, there are two ways to do that. You can either take a lamb with you on the journey, or you can buy a lamb when you get there. 
Also, if you're coming from another country, you have the coinage of that country. And when you get to Jerusalem, you are going to want to make offerings. And those offerings have to be in the local Jewish currency, uh, the offerings in the temple. And you can do that one of two ways. You can try to, whenever you go to Jerusalem, hoard up local currency and take it back with you so you always have it to take back and forth. Or when you get there, you can go to the money exchange and you can change it. And so... Enterprising business people decided that during these three uh, annual feasts that they could provide a convenient service to the pilgrims. They could have the animals waiting in Jerusalem so that they didn't have to try to bring animals from afar, which is costly and difficult. And they would have money exchange houses so that, so that when the, the pilgrims came with their, their foreign currency, they could get the local currency. These were businesses of convenience, businesses that were providing services to the people. All well and good, right? Well, not exactly. Because Jesus showed up and he saw these businesses and he did not seem to have an objection to the businesses themselves. But he had an objection to the location of the businesses. And this was the temple, uh, Herod's temple, and this temple had been being built for decades. And this temple had had levels of restrictiveness. And there was the the most holy place, and then the holy place. That's where the priests went. And then there was the the court of the the men, and the court of the women, and the court of the the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And it looks like this this marketplace was set up in the courtyard. Of the Gentiles. So it was on the outer courts of the temple. And that was Jesus' objection. It wasn't to the commerce itself, it was to the placement of that commerce. And so, this is, this is quite shocking. We, we were shocked by his words to his mother, and now we're, we're, we're surprised by the vehemence and even violence of his actions here, where he makes a whip out of cords, and he drives them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He, he goes to the money changers' tables, and he, he overturns them, and he tells the, those who were selling, selling pigeons, why he was doing this. Why he was doing this. Verse 16. He says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, this is the first time he refers to his father as my father. That will get him in big trouble later. But here, they sort of pass over that because of, of what he's doing. That was shocking enough. But he calls God his own father, and he says that you should not turn my father's house into an emporium, into a flea market, into a marketplace. Now, his disciples later, verse 17, take a look at this, because this is also a characteristic of this gospel. His disciples remembered, and this looks like they remembered later, when they were able to put two and two together. It says, His disciples remembered that it was written, and here this is Psalm 69, verse 9, Zeal for your house will consume me. So his disciples were still brand new. They were still trying to figure this out. Then finally they said, Oh, this was what was written in the Psalm. I see why Jesus was so vehement, so zealous for the house of His Father. He was consumed. He was eaten up with concern for the house of his father. Now, you can imagine that this did not go over particularly well. 
uh, particularly with the rulers of the temple. And you can imagine, we don't have details, but you can imagine that the rulers of the temple got a cut of what was going on in the marketplace. So uh, it was uh, it was a help to the pilgrims, but it was also probably lucrative for those who were in charge of the temple precincts. And so they demand what? Verse 18, a sign, a sign. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Show us a sign to justify these actions. Now, there's some irony going on here. And the irony is, if you look back at verse 9, there's a parenthetical statement that said, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So the servants knew about the first sign. So the lowly servants who are serving tables at the feast know about the sign, but the lordly rulers of the temple don't know about the sign. And we will see this throughout this gospel, that the lowly are the ones who seem to get it more easily, and those who are in authority, the the good people, the religious people, are the ones who are not understanding it and even becoming resistant to Jesus. But there's another irony here as well. They're saying, show us a sign. Well, what do you think he just did? That was a sign. By casting out the, the marketplace from the temple, that in of itself was a sign. But he, he answers them. He said, you want a sign? I will give you a sign. But first you need to do something. You do something first, and then if you do that, I will give you the sign. And this is what you need to do. Destroy this temple. And then I'll give you the sign. So you, you take the temple down, you destroy the temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. That's the sign I will give you to justify my actions here. And obviously they thought that was ludicrous, and they say, 46 years, and by the way, it, hadn't even, it wasn't even finished yet. So they've been working on this for 46 years. He says, 46 years we've been working on this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? And so they didn't take the challenge. You see, he says, go ahead. You want to see a sign, you do this and I'll do that. They didn't take the challenge. Now, the author here does this, and we're picking up as we begin to talk about the Gospel of John, we're picking up characteristics of the author. And one of the things the author does in is he often breaks in and explains things to us. And that's what he does here in verses 21 and 22. He, the author breaks in and says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was speaking about the temple of his own body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So here we get the explanation that nobody understood at the time. The religious leaders didn't understand it. His disciples didn't understand it until it took place. But it turns out that the religious leaders actually ended up taking him up on the challenge. What did he say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And here we're only in chapter 2, but we already have this, this pointing to the fact that one day, a few years later, the temple authorities would take up that challenge and they would destroy the temple of Jesus' body. And Jesus would, after three days, raise the temple of His body up 
again. This is not the first time we've encountered this. If you remember last, uh, or well, actually it was our first, the first sermon, the first sermon on John. We got to John chapter 1 verse 14, where it says, And the Word, referring to the Son of God, the Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we already had this idea that that the real dwelling, the permanent dwelling of God with man, is as a man. And here we find that Jesus said, I will raise up this temple of my body once you destroy it. And his disciples, once he had risen from the dead, they put two and two together and they said, Oh, that's what he meant. That's what he meant. And it says that they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They were able to understand the Old Testament now and the references to God raising up the Messiah from the dead. Now, so far, so good. Jesus has performed two signs, and people have believed in Him. This is, this is going very well, it looks like. And what we find here is that Jesus had performed two actions that were replacements. We already saw how the first one replaced rites of purification that don't really purify. And the second one, here it's interesting because he was able to set aside those stone jars really easily, wasn't he? He didn't really take them very seriously. Oh, stone jars, fill those up with water. We'll use them for another purpose. He was able to to cast them aside very easily and replace them with something better. That's because they were man-made. Those rites of purification were not given by God. They were rites that had grown up over the years. And he was able to set aside these man-made rites of purification in favor of true purification by him. But the second one is interesting because it's more, it's more complicated. The temple was an institution by God. The sacrifices that were offered in the temple were demanded by God, required by God. And so these were not man-made institutions. And so the first thing he did was to protect the integrity of the temple from the profanation of commerce. So first of all, it looks like he's establishing it and protecting that temple so that it might go on forever. But then he says, take it down. Destroy it. And then he points, the author tells us that he was pointing to his own body. What's he saying? Yes, this was required by God. Yes, this was commanded by God. Yes, these sacrifices were commanded by God. And here we are doing this Passover, which was commanded by God. And it's not that they're wrong. It's not that they're man-made. But they're temporary. Because in the final analysis, they don't take away sins either. And so he's taking away the man-made. And he's also replacing the temporary. And in the first case, he points very clearly to his death. My hour has not yet come. Well, not so clearly yet. It will become clear. In the second place, he refers not only to his death, destroy this temple, but he refers also to his resurrection. And we're only in chapter 2. And we have these these pointers, these signs that are pointing to, to the finale, that Jesus would die, that Jesus would rise again. Now, That's not all he did in Jerusalem. Look at verse 23. 
It says, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. It may simply be referring to these two, or it may be that he did a number of other signs. But we find out that these signs were working beautifully. He was doing the signs. People were understanding that they were pointing to him and they were believing in his name. That's the expression it says. They believed in his name. And we already saw in chapter 1, verse 12, that anyone who believes in his name has the right to become a child of God. And so everything is going exceedingly well here in in the, the only the sixth day of his ministry. But then we have this conclusion which ends on a very cautionary note. Verse 24, But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them. This is the same word, and there's a play on words here, it's the same word. They believed in Him, but He did not believe Himself to them. They trusted in Him, but He did not entrust Himself to them. To them. They believed him. He didn't believe them. Why not? Well, the explanation is because he knew them. And not only knew them, it says he knew all people. He knows humans, he knows what we're like, he knows our capacity to fickleness, self deception. Hypocrisy. He knows how we can jump at something when it seems good. And he knows what a hard time we have following through. And he didn't need anybody to tell him that. Look at verse 25. He knew all people and and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he, he himself knew what was in man. So far, we've seen some witnesses to Jesus, haven't we? We've seen the witness of John the Baptist. We've, we've seen the witness of disciples telling others about Jesus. Now we've seen the witness of the signs. So we've, we've seen and heard three witnesses about Jesus, but Jesus didn't need any witnesses to tell Him what we're like, because He already knew. And so He didn't entrust Himself yet to those who were saying, I believe. And this cautionary note is important because as we go through this Gospel, we will find a consistent pattern, and it's this. Faith that results from signs is better than no faith at all. But faith that depends on signs is not true faith until it comes to fruition in discipleship. That is to say, in following Jesus with our lives. And we will find in this Gospel of John, this group that's called believers in Jesus, that there will become come a separation in this group as they understand more and more of what it means to believe in Jesus, there will be two different reactions. There will be those who say, no, 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 I I wasn't counting on that. 
I, I wasn't counting on, on that much involvement in my life and that much change in my life and that much commitment in my life and that much, and that much sacrifice on my part. And they tap out. They say no, and they no longer follow Him. In some case, they become belligerent against Him. These who believed at one point because they saw signs. That's one group. But the other group, the believers, these are the ones who not only believe because they see the signs and see that to which the signs point, Jesus, who He is, what He came to do, but their belief comes to fruition in discipleship. And they follow Him with their lives. Now this is a message not only for the people of John's day, it's a message for us as well, maybe particularly important for us, because we live here. And do you know how much it costs us to declare that we are believers in Jesus? Very, very little. Very, very little in our context. If we read church history, if we read the New Testament, if we read church history, if we read the news today, we find that to say, I believe in Jesus, is a very costly proposition for many. In our current situation, it's not that costly. And so it's, it's easy for us to say, oh, this is great. These signs are wonderful. It's pointing to who He is. I like that. I like what I'm seeing. I believe. But what's the proof of that? The proof of that is our lives. How we live our lives. Are we following Jesus? And so we hear this call, yes, to believe. That's why this whole book is written. So that we might believe in the name of the Son of God and have life in His name. And, as believers, so that we might follow Him with our lives. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for these signs that point to Jesus, His glory, as the Son of God, as the King of Israel, as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we see that glory manifest in these two signs that, that replace the old, that which was passing away, that which was obsolete, that which really never gave us what we need and replaces it with Himself. And we thank You for Jesus, His death, His resurrection. And I pray for all of us, O oh God, for myself, I pray for all of us here, all of us listening to this text today, that we would see Jesus' glory, that we would believe in Him, and that we would follow Him with our lives. And we pray this in His name. Amen.